it's not just the valuations of stores, in most cases based on incredible profits, that is fueling a desire for some to step away from the market and cash in. My own expectation is that a number of folks will make some decisions to sell because they've done really well, and uh, they've probably done well enough to think differently about their future. And they're also at a point where they say, you know, it could be a little softer. I didn't really want to go through that again. This is Full Throttle, the Presidio Group's automotive industry podcast. I'm your host, Jason Stein, Presidio's marketing and communications advisor and host of SiriusXM's Cars and Culture on Business Channel 132. On a monthly basis, Full Throttle serves as the industry's meeting point for great conversations with leaders across the automotive world. And today, I sit down with one of the true retail giants in our industry, a tireless innovator, Don Flo, chairman and CEO of Flo Automotive Companies. The buy-sell market hasn't been the only element of the retail business that has faced a radical transformation. It's also the enormous change occurring across the industry. There are many aspects to consider in the new retail reality. Inventory levels, data sharing agreements, the future of incentives in a post-pandemic environment, and the future of brick and mortar and the employees that work within those walls. Today, we explore all of those topics with a leader who spends his time thinking about new models, new approaches, and every measure of analytics that he can get his hands on. He's Don Flo. His reach is about as broad as they come in auto retail, 45 stores across 21 manufacturers, nine cities in North Carolina and Virginia. From one pre-owned center in 1957 that offered fully reconditioned cars and a warranty, Flow Automotive has built on trust. And from that one store, a Volkswagen franchise was added four years later, and the rest of the story rolled on. The Flow name is one recognized at all levels. Today, Don Flow shares his vision of retail and what the future holds. He's thought-provoking, introspective, and always willing to learn. We learn a little more on Full Throttle, the Presidio Group's automotive industry podcast. Hi, I'm Don Flo, and this is Presidio's podcast, Full Throttle. He's an innovator. He's a creator. He's a pioneer. He's a trailblazer. Those are some of the words that others have used about him, and I would concur. He never rests. Don Flo, it's an honor to have you on the program. Thanks for joining Full Throttle. Jason, it's my privilege to be here. Happy New Year to you. I sure like to meet those fine folks who say so many kind things. Maybe I could write them down and give them to some other friends that don't think the same thing of me. Thank you, though. <laughs> we could arrange that. And a, a, a very happy New Year uh, to you as well. When you look at where the retail space is today, I know you have said uh, this is a very unusual time. Uh, I know you've you've told your team that that we're in a we have been in a uh, mostly supply-driven market, which is very different than a demand-driven market. Where do you find yourself in January of 2023 from a operating standpoint? So, of course, we've just concluded two and a half years of probably the most unusual experience of my 44 years in our business. Um, and I think we've learned an enormous amount from it uh, as an industry, uh, how value is created, uh, what's possible for us to do and how we can operate as retailers. And so, Jason, when I look out and say for our company, uh, we ended the year in a very strong position. Uh, and But as we look ahead, we've learned that our ability to forecast is actually minimal because we really don't know. 30 days is an extended forecast right now. We're down to <laughs> weekly forecasts. Wow. What's moving with inventory? Literally, 10 days is the most look we see anymore with any clarity along the way. 
Uh, we just finished doing this last on um, this Monday, and we looked out ahead. We will actually end January with less cars in stock than we ended December with across all of our brands. And so it tells you uh, that we'll have a 70% turn rate again across the brand for the whole company. So it tells me when I look out ahead that we should probably in Q1 see something somewhat similar to what we've seen before. Now, I think the question will be for all of us is, what are what is the impact of interest rates and who will impact? It's fair to assume that impacts income folks who are strained to make the jump from 3% to 7% and how that translates into a monthly payment. So the brands who are impacted by that will see that first and foremost along the way. We've already seen that in the over $30,000 used car bracket. So those cars have slowed almost everywhere now because that payment difference has really jumped for folks along the way. We first extended payments in terms of terms, but terms won't cover up a gigantic jump in terms of the interest rate itself. So we enter the year with cautious optimism because of the big deficit in the relationship between supply and demand with somewhere between five and six million, million vehicles in deficit from the last several years. It feels like there is pent up demand. The question will be how much is demand uh, down, dampened down by the interest rates and does it match supply? So if supply can reach somewhere 14 and a half million units this year, 14 to 14 and a half, uh, will demand meet that? And so we actually end up in a very similar place along the way. And if that's the case, uh, that's a pretty balanced situation for the OEM and for us. Uh, because if you look at the incentive differential, you know, Jason, I was looking at one brand whose incentives were down $5,000 a unit. And just to make the math easy, uh, we'll call it 200,000 units. Uh, that's a pretty good number. Mm, yeah, it 200, is. 200,000 times 5,000. So if you look at everybody winning through that particular system. Uh, so the last day I would say we look at it, Jason, think, what's perfection look like in our business? What's that uh, beautiful model? 50 to 60% turnover every single month. We think we hold margin, the OEM holds margin, and the customer has selection. What's the relationship between the OEM and the dealer going to look like in the future after what we've gone through, Don? So it's a great question because I think it has uh, two ways it can move. So one will say a relationship that's just framed by legal framework, by legal framework. Uh, I personally have never found that to be a relationship that's really sustainable yeah, <laughs> because you're right. bouncing up against the legal framework all the time. There will be some OEMs that head that direction. They're going to press the boundaries of the legal framework all the time because they believe there is a model that's better. There are other OEMs who I believe have made a mindset, which is uh, the legal framework does not determine frame our partnership. We are actually creating value together. So OEMs who embrace the latter model are going to, and who commit to trust at the central point of what we are, have the opportunity to create new value. Because the integration between retail and the OEM, if done properly, has the potential to open up new relationships and value in the marketplace. But both of us are quite uncomfortable with that unless there's a new kind of relationship that can emerge. And we know that the OEM really has to first extend the kind of the fig leaf in this matter. But we also know the dealers have got to respond as well, assuming best intentions and then create a much more collaborative 
approach to how they go to business. If 30 to 40 days supply becomes the norm, as some have predicted, at least 80% of the sales will begin online and 50% are purchased, but delivery is taken at the store. So what do the buildings look like in the future? Don't ask that too much since I've just invested in about 40 locations. <laughs> but what will the real future look like? It's hard for me to imagine, Jason, that the size of our showrooms and the way the cars are laid out and what we actually do in our showrooms being the same. So picture an omni-channel process where the transaction is largely done before the customer actually arrives at the dealership. That doesn't mean we're irrelevant. It just means the transaction is digitized. So pricing is done online. Appraisals are 90% done online. Financing begins online in that process. So we ask when they come to the dealership, what are they actually coming for? And so it has to be a value-creating experience. And I think gigantic showrooms that are laid out in kind of the way they typically are, are probably not what that's going to look like. There'll be a delivery section of the business, and there'll be an engagement section that will really involve using all kinds of virtual reality and, and interesting things to engage the customer on the car. What we believe in the car, when the customer comes in, if they have to come in in the future, so think about Amazon's taught us like just go from left to right, that's all you should do. And if I, if you, if I have to do more than that, then you got to make it fun for me. You got to make it entertaining for me. You got to make it enjoyable for me. You got to make it educational for me. You got to make it engaging for me. How will we do that when the guest comes in? And that extends to the point that you just made, which is the new and different relationship that will exist with the OEM. And right. both groups will have to get on board with what that appearance is, what the facilities look like. Right. But there's also something else around data sharing and unlocking new value for dealers and OEMs. How do dealers ensure that they're not disadvantaged in any kind of new data sharing arrangement that could occur? So this is where data sharing agreements are really important, uh, that we work closely with the OEMs to make sure first that we set the correct framework up. So then let's think about kind of where that uh, opportunity to create a new relationship exists. So here I have the customer. And I know a lot about the customer. Here they have the car. They know a lot about the car. If we can merge those two together so that we understood exactly the right way and the right time to, to engage the customer, that we actually were able to do real one-on-one -on -one marketing, the opportunity for that really opens up new doors and doors for us because then we're not talking about 50% service retention anymore. We're talking mm -hmm. about 70, 80, 90. But uh, how do we make sure we say who's the initial contact with the customer? What's the relationship with that? Then we look at inside of these data sharing agreements, if that data is shared, sold in any way, we should be participating in that value stream. And so that has to be incorporated with inside of these, all these agreements. And if you look at it, so that also involves, for instance, uh, over the air uh, updates and et cetera, that are value creating over the air updates. I'm not talking about safety recalls, talking about value creating things. That's an effect part of the margin, if we might think about that. So how are we going to participate in that fully so that full value stream associated with the product still is appropriated in a, in a, a way that's equitable?
There's a lot of talk, Don, about scale and um, in, in finding economies of, of scale. Can large dealer groups access all of the revenue around future businesses? Should they be thinking about doing that? And, and I'm talking about starting finance companies or insurance companies or fleet companies, maybe even subscription, which I know you've gone down that path before. Yeah, we're, we're a strong believer we should be doing that. And the reason why, uh, we, we think we should be transportation service providers if we can think about this holistically, and we would say, okay, customers have all kinds of transportation needs. How do we meet the needs around that along with them? And what are the value-creating activities associated with this that we participate in this in creating value for our customers along the way? And when we step out of that, we actually invite the customer to establish a relationship with somebody away from us. If our goal is to have a deep relationship with everything around mobility in their lives, how do we become the trusted place for them to come when it comes to mobility? And so there's opportunities in in this space along the way. You have to become a certain size to go out, actually, you know, achieve that. But my belief is in the next wave of growth, we'll see large dealer groups begin to think about that. And some of them have already done that on the way. Is there a future in, uh, you know, across the country for single point? stores anymore? Well, um, I once read an article by Sam Walton, and it was how I would compete against Walmart. (laughs) And Walton said, you know what? I'd be at the front of the store every time. Everybody would know me. I would know every customer we had. We would respond to whatever customer needed whenever they needed it. And so I would say deep personal service, fully engaged people, not uh, the owner operators there on the spot, that still adds value to our marketplace. Now, the question will be where their costs get out of line with their ability to actually deliver value. So if you think about it like this, so values, the revenue level side there, what's the cost it takes to retain? The difference of that is our profit. It may take too much cost to actually create that much value. But I, I know that that still matters to people because personal relationships still matter along the way. The more difficult for folks in that setting will be, can they attract and retain the human talent needed to deliver that, not having enough opportunities for growth, not being able to give a future to folks like that? What we've found is our ability to attract young people, come through training programs, uh, look for a future career, enables us to give a full pathway for what they want to do. That's more difficult if you have a single store. And if most sales begin online, which leads to appointments, but only 20% or less are classic walk-ins, we could say, what do retail hours look like in the future? Uh, Could it radically alter work schedules, make it easier to hire people? Um, Can productivity be significantly increased? So, of course, COVID helped a lot of us really move from the theory stage of this to actuality. Yeah. uh, Because... One, we lost a lot of people. Uh, We had a lot of people out of work a lot of times. People didn't want to come in and shop all the time. And so we experimented a lot with hours during that period of time and said, I grew up in a time, you know, it was bell to bell, nine to nine, nine to 10, nine to 11, you know, hours of the night. (laughs) And then we found out, you know what? People don't want to shop like that anymore. Yeah. And so we looked and said, what time do we need to open up? And so in every market, we start tracking all of our traffic and stuff. And we said, look, Summertime, 7.30, wintertime, 7 o'clock at night. We also tracked how many people come in, what we might call classic walk-in after 6.30 at night. Very few. We were able to pull all of our hours back. 
People got to go home on time, focus on productivity during that period of time with changing things. And so the average sales per salesperson went from 10 to 11 to 12 to 13, 14 and 15. So incomes went up. And so we've been trying to say, now, how do we learn from that and embed that permanently in what we're doing? Because we know younger generation, uh, they were born with more intelligence than we, my generation was. <laughs> Somebody told us, we're going to, if they tell them you're going to work from nine to nine every day, they're like, you're on the wrong planet. That's not happening. <laughs> now we got, we got to adjust to that, right? We got to adjust to what that looks like. And we all did that during COVID. You know, most of us had to sit with our employee base, Jason, and say, how do we make this work for you? You got dual incomes. You got kids at home now. You got parents that moved in with you. What do you need us to do? And yeah. the, the organizations that did that had tremendous response from their employee base. And we all learned from them to say, okay, given we, we proved we could do that, how do we think about our future in a different way? A couple more things about the future. Are we looking at a potential radical shift in inventory levels, Don? And if so, how can pipeline selling be fully integrated upstream all the way to the factory, maybe? So, so this is a big opportunity, a uh, huge opportunity for, for all of us. Uh, I'm in a conversation with a couple of OEMs who are in the, in the decision-making process about committing to 30-day supply and effectively paying dealers if they don't. Hmm. Wow. They're saying it works for all of us. This is a different model because if we tied up the pipeline selling and, and think about all the way to the factory. So let's like one, I place my order and now I'm tagged to the actual the car being built. I'm being sent pictures of the car being built, coming off the line. Here's on the windshield, specially built for Jason Stein. Mm. Shipping RFD chip, where it is, when it's come, just arrived the dealership. Now I'm tied in. This is where I'm talking about this kind of new relationship. Imagine us and OEM tied together like that. Or if I buy a car that's already been built, tell me exactly where it is. Oh, yeah, that car is halfway across the United States right now or halfway across the Atlantic or halfway across the Pacific right now. That's your car just tagged for you. You now can track that all the way through that. So we see and own this together uh, because in the past, what's happened is there's no insight to this. There's no transparency to it. We just put you on a list. We'll call you when we got something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The OEMs we sit at a port for a while. Right, right, right. Forever. Like, and by the way, every week I come up with a new excuse about why your car's not here. <laughs> you know, and I don't know, which, you know, I lose all credibility when I do that. True. Instead of being able to say, look where your car is. And we've all shared this together. Now, the buy sell market. What are you seeing today? What do you expect this year? Uh, well, you know, last year, if you want to buy something, you paid a lot. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and for good reason. Strong yeah. earnings, people looking out ahead, high level of confidence. If you were a seller, you would say you have to, to reward me for walking away from this market. I think it probably will uh, tamper down a little bit. My own expectation is that a number of folks will make some decisions to sell because they've done really well. And uh, they've probably done well enough to think differently about their future. And they're also at a point where they say, you know, it could be a little softer. I didn't really want to go through that again. So relative to last year, uh, I think there'll be more openness to it. But if you look back on earnings and you say, my multiple is going to be on the last three years, it's not going to be cheap. So, no. you know, think carefully about that. Look carefully about that. Look at, for us, we look at, so what's the fixed coverage? You know, what's the sales effectiveness in the market? 
uh, what's the customer experience uh, on numbers like that. So that gives us a much clearer picture of uh, how uh, secure are those earnings. If their earnings were just driven by new car grosses, that's a different business model than a model that's heavily covered, VIX covers with it. You know, images have already been performed on it, so we're ready to go and operate on it. Uh, but my guess is you will see folks being pretty active in, in the M&A business next year. Well, you always get me thinking about where this auto industry is headed. And I think uh, throughout the course of this conversation, we have a lot to think about, Don Flo. Uh, it'll be an exciting year. I wish you the best of luck, uh, you and uh, your entire team. And thank you for sharing your thoughts here on uh, Full Throttle. Jason, it's a privilege to be with you. Um, I'm excited about the next year. Uh, I will follow what you're saying for them because you bring folks on that I really have a lot of confidence in. And one way we all do business together is we learn from each other in this business. So Amen. thanks for bringing yourself to the market. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And thanks for being on the program, Don. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks again to my guest, Don Flo. And thanks for listening to Full Throttle. Come back to us again in February for our next interview on this platform. Suggestions? Email me at jason at flat6media.com. And to learn more about the Presidio Group, go to thepresidiogroup.com or follow us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.